Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Meg Rosenberg, and this is New Books in Physics. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. I just sat down with Don Lincoln to talk about his new book, The Large Hadron Collider, The Extraordinary Story of the Higgs Boson and Other Stuff That Will Blow Your Mind. This was published by the Johns Hopkins University Press, and it just came out this past September in 2014. This book encompasses several things at the same time, and is really wonderful for readers interested in physics, in the recent excitement over the Higgs boson, and the history and science of particle accelerators. This is an insider's look into how an incredibly complex and precise project works, and how the results of the Large Hadron Collider, or LHC for short, fit into the broader picture of how we understand the fundamental laws of physics. And with that, I'll turn it over to our conversation. So I'm here today to talk with Dr. Don Lincoln about his new book, The Large Hadron Collider, The Extraordinary Story of the Higgs Boson and Other Stuff That Will Blow Your Mind. Dr. Lincoln is a senior scientist at the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory, as well as an adjunct professor of physics at the University of Notre Dame. And in addition to all of that, he's an avid science communicator, public speaker, and science writer, and I am delighted to have the opportunity today to hear from him about his wonderful new book. So welcome to New Books in Physics, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. Well, thanks for inviting me, Meg. It's, uh, it's nice to talk to you. Um, I wonder if you could start out by saying just a few words about yourself and how you came to be interested in physics, and particle physics in particular. I, I think the real question is, how can one not be interested in particle physics? Um, that may be a bit of a parochial opinion, but you know, I've always been interested in sort of the big questions, questions that have um, perplexed mankind for thousands of years. Why are we here? How did we get here? Um, why is the universe the way it is? Does it have to be the way it is? How did it come into existence? And the more I pursued different ways to try and understand those questions, what I found was that um, it led me inex- in- inexorably to cosmology and particle physics because it is in those fields of science where we really do try to get at the very nature of how the universe um, works. And so that was my real interest in it. Okay, great. <laughs> um, so how did you come to write the current book, The Large Hadron Collider? Well, uh, there are two answers to that. One is my interest in writing in general, and my second is this book in specific. Um, writing in general, um, the reason I write is is quite simple. Um, I grew up in the country in a uh, in an area where the universities were far, few and far between. Um, my parents were not highly educated. Uh, my dad never finished high school. And so the reason I managed to become a, a scientist is because of people who um, in the 1960s and 1970s wrote books that I read when I, you know, a little later than that. Um, people like uh, Carl Sagan or uh, James Burke uh, George Gamow. And these people were practicing scientists and they wrote accessible books for someone who had no background in it. And um, 
without being able to read books like that from people who thought it was important to to teach the curious, um, I would never have been a scientist. And so I let think that maybe somewhere out there in, in Iowa or Kansas or uh, some other small little town somewhere, somebody will read my book and have their eyes open to the amazing world that's out there. So that's kind of the story of why I write books in general. But um, this particular book I was really interested in writing because the biggest and most powerful scientific facility for answering these big questions is the Large Hadron Collider um, at, at the CERN Laboratory in Europe. Um, before that, it was the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory, which is where I um, uh, where I'm on the staff. And so we scientists are uh, an opportunistic uh, sort of type of individual. Um, we'll go where the equipment is. And so luckily, I'm able to um, still work at the America's premier particle physics laboratory and split my time. I fly back and forth to Europe and I am able to use this large accelerator to answer really interesting questions. And it seemed unfair if I could have all the fun to myself. And so I thought if I would write a book, maybe some other people would enjoy not only the science, but sort of the personal dimension of what it's like to do this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, we start off at the beginning, pretty much at the basics. Uh, we have this chapter one, beginnings and building blocks. And it seems like you situate the Large Hadron Collider as the latest and largest in a few respects. Uh, attempts to get at the fundamental laws of physics and understand the rules that govern matter and energy. And you compare scientists to children who are constantly asking why until you get to a question that really has no answer yet. So I guess my question for you is, do you feel like that child? And Always. <laughs> Always. Great. Is the LHC getting us a bit further in that chain of whys? Well, sure. I mean, it doesn't really matter what question you ask. Um, I mean, there are sort of, you know, how we should all get along, social questions that, that uh, you know, the physics, it cannot answer well. But when you start asking questions about the universe, like, um, uh, oh, you know, why is something hot? You know, why? Well, you immediately start uh, understanding things about um, how heat works and how atoms vibrate. But then you ask yourself what atoms are. And then you have to get down into the protons, the neutrons and electrons. If you dig deep enough, you find the protons and neutrons themselves are made of smaller things still. And you are then finally get to the frontier of knowledge that we currently have, which says that the smallest building blocks of the universe are particles called quarks and particles called leptons. Uh, quarks are found inside protons and neutrons and lepton, the most familiar is the electron. And so um, an accelerator like first the uh, well many uh, a decade not a decade a century worth of of accelerators has brought us to where we are now um but most recently the fermilab tevatron and now the large hadron collider are the premier facilities for studying a little bit deeper trying to maybe peel back another layer of this subatomic onion and try to understand deeper things that uh, that we've studied for well thousands of years mm -hmm. So uh, immediately we get into the stuff that we already know in chapter two. And I like the structure of your book because it uh, lays out everything at the beginning. What do we know? And then how does the Large Hadron Collider fit into that? And what new questions will it answer in the future? 
Um, so you give us a bit of a background on the fundamental particles and forces, some of them that you just mentioned, uh, that build up our entire universe. And a theme that, that I noticed was this building on the simple to get to the complex. So is that how you how you feel or, or how you envision all of our universe to be to work? Is it building on always more complex systems? Well, yes. I mean, there's sort of two ways that one can go about thinking about this sort of science. One is what is called reductionist scientist science, where you dig down to the very most basic building blocks, like uh, um, like Legos, for instance. You you know you have the various little bits of Legos that you can build something. Then there is sort of in scientists interested in more complex science, where what they are thinking about is if you take the Legos and you build a, a representation of the Taj Mahal or something, and the, they would say that there's more to this representation of this Taj Mahal than simply the Legos themselves because it's the connections between the Legos that give the the sort of the beauty and the majesty of, of something like the Taj Mahal. And so, you know, it depends a little on your focus. And... It's true that that if you did build a Taj Mahal, all of the rules associated with how that came to be would be embodied in the rules of Legos. I mean, they only can snap together in certain ways, and there are ways they can't snap. You can't take a Lego and rotate it 45 degrees and snap it in. It, it simply doesn't work that way. So for me, the my, my first thought was the first thing is to find out what the smallest rules are, I mean, sorry, the smallest building blocks, and then what are the rules that allow you to connect them together? So um, the smallest building blocks, as I said a moment ago, that we're familiar with are uh, particles called quarks and particles called leptons. And the quarks were uh, imagined in 1964, so 50 years ago, and about 10 years later, we had data that proved that, that quarks did exist. Um, inside protons and neutrons, each one contains three quarks. That's the simplest way of looking at it. Now, then the question is, what holds the quarks together? And for that, you need to understand that there are forces. We know of four, actually probably five now, and I'll get to that in a moment, Five distinct forces. The most familiar force to all of us is gravity. It's what keeps us on the ground. Um, but it turns out that gravity is surprisingly weak. It is not something that we're able to study in the subatomic realm. Uh, we just don't have the facilities and the capability of doing that. Um, there, and we can actually talk about why it's weak a little later. But the other forces, uh, the next most common force that people know about is electromagnetism. So that's what causes electricity work, what makes magnets work, what makes all of chemistry happen, that makes what makes light work. So electromagnetism is a very ubiquitous force, and it really sort of um, has huge impact on the world that we see around us. There are two more forces that are less familiar, um, both found inside the nucleus of atoms. One is the strong nuclear force, and that's what holds the protons and neutrons together, and at a deeper level holds the quarks inside the protons and neutrons. And the other force, the weak nuclear force, is responsible for um, many forms of radioactivity. And that is in part why... Um, Many radioactive things decay over 
not just you know seconds or minutes, but days or months or years or thousands of years. And it's because the force is weak generally that the the um, radiation is something that happens usually fairly slowly. Now there is a new force on the horizon, and we knew about this, or we suspected it, uh, 50 years ago. But now we're able to say that it's probably true. The fifth force is the force that causes the Higgs boson, Higgs field, to work. This force gives particles, fundamental subatomic particles, their mass. And this is the story of the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, because the purpose for that accelerator, the reason it was built, was to study the mechanism whereby these tiny subatomic particles get their mass. And the original idea was proposed in 1964. The initial discovery was um, uh, occurred was announced on July 4th of 2012 by two experiments, one of which I'm affiliated with. And the uh, announcement was not, I mean, it was quite strong. It got a huge splash in the press. But scientifically, what we said is we think we found something. It could be a particle called the Higgs boson, which um, had been predicted half a century prior. Um, and then a few years, not a few years, a few months later, about nine months later, we were or, or, we were more confident that we understood that what we found really was this Higgs boson. And this was affirmed by the um, Nobel Prize in Physics given to uh, Francois Angler and Peter Higgs last year. Uh, tomorrow is, I believe, the um, day that the 2014 Nobel Prize in Physics will be announced. But a year ago, it was announced to people for predicting the Higgs boson back in 1964. So that's kind of the sort of big picture. We did not know prior to turning on the LHC that the Higgs boson and the Higgs field existed, um, but now we do. And so now we can look forward to even newer and, and more interesting discoveries. Mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting way to describe the, the fifth force. Do you get a lot of Star Wars jokes? <laughs> All the time, (laughs) you know, especially when you tell people that the Higgs boson is or the Higgs field is everywhere, (laughs) you know, then you start getting, you know, the force, it permeates us, it's through us, it guides our lives. Yeah, yes, I I have heard many of these. (laughs) Um, Well, not related, but a lighter note. um, You had a very interesting description in this chapter, I noticed, about how the different types of quarks came to be named. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the strange, because that's, someone said, oh, that's strange, and charm from charming, and then top and bottom, I guess, were once maybe going to be truth and beauty. Uh, I, I never knew that before, and I just wonder, like, as a senior scientist at Fermilab, uh, how do these kinds of naming conven- conventions become established? <laughs> well, it usually boils down to the person who came up with the idea. Um, they just come up with names for these sorts of things. Um, up, down, and strange were um, the first quarks that were uh, proposed in 64. And up and down um, has antecedents back in nuclear physics where it was possible to treat protons and neutrons as a single kind of particle, one an up particle that they called it the up particle and one the down particle. And um, because of the quark content of protons and neutrons, the name stuck with the quarks. And the strange particles uh, were discovered in the 40s. And they were strange because 
they could be made very easily, but decayed. It was very difficult for them to decay, and that's very unusual. Usually in particle physics, if something is easy to make, it's easy to destroy, but that wasn't the case with these, which is why people said, gee, that's strange. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it turned out that the reason that the particles had this bizarre property was that strange quarks were inside them. And so the history of nuclear physics was embodied in the names of the fr- um, first three. So the name for the charm quark uh, is perhaps shrouded in history. Uh, I, it was discovered in um, 1974, and I know people who were involved with that. Um, if you talk to them, you get a number of stories, some taller than others. But here's the the, the story that I like the best. Um, it turns out that the of the three quarks that were known to exist prior to that, the up, down, and strange quark, an up quark has a charge of two-thirds that of a proton. A down quark has a charge of minus one-third that of a proton. And that's the same as a strange quark, also minus one-third that of a proton. So you had one quark with a charge of two-thirds a proton and two quarks with a charge of minus one-third of the proton. And so the story goes, as someone said, wouldn't it be charming if there was another quark with two-thirds the charge? Um, and so that was postulated and actually found in October uh, 1974. So that was uh, 40 years ago, um, actually this month. I don't remember what day it was. And um, as far as the top and bottom quark, people postulated that those um, because it solved some problems that uh, the theory was unable to explain unless they existed. And nobody knew that they were real or not. And it was in um, 1977 when at Fermilab, the bottom quark was discovered. And for a long time there, there were two competing naming conventions for the the the, the third pair of quarks, bottom and top. It was also for a long time called truth and beauty. And uh, that was, of course, fun when I was younger because when I would give public lectures, we had not yet found the, the, the what we now call the top quark, but my lectures then said we're searching for truth. Um, however, the uh, name has now pretty much settled down to top and bottom quarks. And this was just sort of... Uh, a consensus of the community simply by what people called them. Um, we have names, uh, tentative names for a, another pair of quarks if they exist, which are called B prime and T prime, which is really boring. And I hope that if anybody finds one, we'll come up with better names than that. <laughs> okay. Um, this book I've noticed is aimed at a very diverse audience as well. Uh, and you kind of talk to different groups of readers throughout the book. Um, was it challenging to try to reach such a broad audience and talk to everybody? Um, anytime you write a popularization, the real question is, who is your reader? And for this particular book, um, I was not trying to get at people who had no interest in science at all. Um, I didn't see that it, that was my goal because that's a hard book to write for that audience and try to write for people who have some interest in it. Um, my, my target audience was a, an amalgam of people ranging from, um, say, my brother-in-law, who's a banker type, so he's very smart but doesn't know that much science, um, to a young me, someone, as I said, out there in some small town in Arkansas or something who's heard about the LHC on 
the news, but doesn't know much about what it is. The trick to writing to a broad audience, actually, it's not as hard as you'd think. What you just have to realize is the person who's, who would read a book like this is smart and curious, and they can understand what we do. Now, mind you, they can't you know, build the same equipment I do, or they can't do a calculation, but you don't need to do that. You need to understand the big ideas. And the beauty of particle physics and fundamental science is that it is simple. I mean, that's the whole point of what we're doing, is trying to to understand the rules of the universe in the simplest possible terms. And once you realize the people reading it are are curious at that, to, at, the, at that question, um, it's not that hard to write for, for that audience. I mean, this is obviously not written for my colleagues, but, uh, but that's okay. They already know the stuff, or, well, most of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, in Chapter 3, we turn to particle accelerators, and mm-hmm. uh, CERN in particular, the European Organization for Nuclear Research, and uh, not just to find out the principles on which particle accelerators work, but also their history. Um, and I bring this up because CERN just had a big anniversary celebration for 60 years of science for peace. And you mention in this chapter how incredible it is to have had a pan-European collaboration come immediately out of the devastation of the Second World War. Uh, and just on a personal note, what are your impressions of working within this broad international community and what, if any, role do you see for science in international relations? Well, I've been doing this now for going on 30 years. And one of the amazing things is the degree to which scientists are completely unconcerned about national borders. Uh, even during the peak of the Cold War, here at Fermilab, we had Russian and mainland Chinese scientists here, and we could work with them because science transcends politics. Politics is temporary. Science is forever. Um, and at CERN, it's, uh, my gosh, I can only imagine what it was like outside the Tower of Babel after the, uh, all the languages were bestowed on the community. It's, it's what it's like to be in the, um, in the cafeteria at lunch because you hear people speaking from every uh, every language you can imagine every every uh, continent there are representatives of people there and it's extraordinary i mean deadly enemies nowadays uh people from uh pakistan and india who you know are the, the two countries are at odds in many ways um they'll work happily together and uh, be great friends. It's absolutely amazing. And, and I think it's a, it's helpful to have such an organization where people are able to get together and ignore these temporary inconveniences of politics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you also mentioned that the LHC is not operating at the moment. Uh, it's being prepared to operate at a higher energy Later, I think it's supposed to open in early 2015. Is that right? It is. Um, the date creeps because, well, we're building things and you have to make sure it's going to work. Um, the current date is a little fuzzy, but the expectation is the accelerator will be cooled down to operating temperature basically at the very first of 2015. Um, there will be amounts of time where the engineers and the accelerator scientists are 
checking things, making sure things are stable, that they can hold the temperature well, hold the vacuums well, things like that. And that will take a couple of months. So I, I would hesitate to give a firm date, but probably in April, maybe in May, maybe early April if we're incredibly lucky, but probably the April-May timeframe, we will start accelerating beams and circulating beams and colliding them. So the, uh, the research program will begin you know, before the summer of 2015, unless, of course, we run into some little snafu that we have to repair. But so far, things are looking quite promising. Mm -hmm. So these upgrades, there are many planned upgrades for the future, and it kind of keeps this project flexible is what I understand. Um, but it's also just a massive project, just, um, you know, so many people working on it and physically, <laughs> physically massive, too. Um, would you mind saying a little bit about how that all works to operate at such a large scale and still remain flexible? Well, part of it is the goodwill of all of the people involved in it. I mean, we all are asking the same questions, and that helps a lot because we all have a single goal. And that, you know, that keeps from some of the gridlock that you find, for instance, in politics where people have very different ideas about what's important. At least in this big science, we all are asking the same questions. Now, it is very large. The accelerator is 17 miles in circumference, so it's huge. Um, the entire research program takes probably ballpark 10,000 people to work on, um, and that is broken down into people who work on the accelerators and people who work on the detectors. Um, the two big detectors each have about 3,000 people on it, so there's 6,000 people right there. Um, there are two smaller experiments with you know, of order a thousand or so people on each. And then you have a couple of thousand people actually building the accelerators and so forth. Um, and so when you have something large like that, where uh, pieces are being built all over the world and shipped to CERN to be assembled to work together, it requires very significant uh, organization. And, uh, you know, that means that it takes a long time. These things are big. You can't go, you know, just buy a, a piece of a detector at your local store. You have to um, design it and create it from scratch. And so the LHC, the first time where people were thinking about it was maybe like 1984 or so, so 30-ish years ago. Um and America got more seriously involved in it a decade after that. Um, you may remember that the U.S. was building a similar facility in Texas, but it was canceled in 1994. And so that's when Americans turned their attention to this facility in Europe. Um, as I said, their science knows no uh, national or does not respect any national borders. And when it became clear that this is where the future of particle physics was, um, we all were happily tromping our way off to, to Switzerland. But uh, it does take a long time. It takes a lot of work. And uh, the LHC turned on in 2010. And I have every expectation that it will be the premier particle physics laboratory for the next 20 or 30 years. Can you describe what does it mean? What is an accelerator? What does that mean? Well, an accelerator means what the regular meaning of the world word means. Um, what we do is we take subatomic particles, where each each detector, sorry, each accelerator might select a different 
particle to be used. At the LHC, we use protons. So you take um, protons out of hydrogen atoms and you put them in an electric field. And in the same way that gravity makes a ball fall, an electric field makes a particle like a charged proton accelerate. And so what we do is using these detectors, we accelerate the protons to near the speed of light. It's, uh, let me think, it's 0.99.99991, if I didn't mess up a nine, percent the speed of light. The speed of light is 300,000 kilometers per second. It's 186,000 miles per second, which is about fast enough to travel around the earth about eight times in a single second. And so we accelerate these particles to these tremendous velocities and we smash them head on with one another. So you might ask yourself, why do you do that? Well, if you, in the same way that if you take a hammer and if you hit the hammer on a rock for a long time, the hammer itself warms up, um, it's the impact that causes high temperatures. And at the LHC, when we collide two protons together at these incredible speeds, we are able to um, generate temperatures that are 100,000 times hotter than the center of the sun. These temperatures have not been common in the universe since the very, very beginning of the universe. Um, the universe was created about 14 billion, with a B, years ago, and we are able to recreate the conditions of the universe a tenth of a trillionth of a second after it began. And so one of the amazing things that these accelerators are, allow us to do is to actually recreate the conditions of the early universe and study what it was like to be there. You know, people often say, well, how do you know how the universe came to be? You weren't there. And that's true. Nobody was there. But we can recreate matter under those conditions. And that is amazing. It is amazing. Uh, so uh, the accelerator portion of the book, Chapter 3, goes right into the detector portion, which is Chapter 4. Um, and this is kind of how we get to see the results of these collisions, right? Because we can't observe them directly. Right. I mean, a collision occurs in 10 to the minus 23 seconds. So that's zero point. 22 zeros and a one seconds, and by some measurements, even shorter than that. So the collisions occur in no time at all. And at the LHC, um, when we're operating at full, um, full collision rate, we have a billion, with a B, collisions every single second that we have to study. And there's simply no way that anybody can do anything that fast. So you have to take electronics, which are much faster than human reflexes, and train them to look at the collisions and record the interesting ones. The way to think of a large um, particle detector is to think of it as a digital camera, essentially. So what happens is the two particles collide and using Einstein's e equals mc squared, the energy gets converted into matter. And so two particles might go in and tens or hundreds or even thousands of particles might come out and hit the detector. So what the detector does is essentially it takes a photograph of every collision. So we have billions and billions of collisions that have been recorded basically as just pictures. And the detectors, I, I call them a digital camera, but that's a little bit misleading because we know what a digital camera is. It, you know, you have one in your cell phone, perhaps. Um, but the, these are digital cameras that have 100 million pixels. 
Now that sounds like a lot until you realize that a um, my my Galaxy S4 phone has 13 million pixels. So it's only six or seven times bigger than what I have on my cell phone. But then you realize that this these huge detectors can take a billion pictures a second. And uh, it, actually, it turns out the it's a little more complicated than that because some of the collisions occur at the same time. But we certainly can take easily 40 million pictures a second, some of them simultaneously, and uh, and record them. These detectors are huge. The biggest of them is 70 feet high, 70 feet wide, 140 feet long. So if you took four of them, they would just cover a professional football field uh, with just enough room left over on the uh, – on the sideline for the water boy. And um, that particular one weighs about 8,000 tons. Um, the detector I work on is a little smaller physically. It is only 50 feet wide, 50 feet high, 70 feet long, but it weighs about 14,000 tons. And these things are just totally incredible. <laughs> um, you describe in the book the uh looking at the fallout from these collisions as a crime scene, as a forensic investigation in a sense, to try to figure out what happened from the resulting particles. Uh, and I really like that analogy. And just the whole book is just chock full of these analogies to explain different pieces. Um, one of my favorites is in actually the last chapter um, about the different kinds of magnets behaving like a kindergarten teacher or a set of kindergarten teachers that are trying to move the group of kids in the right direction. And mm -hmm. Some can push this way and some can push that way. Um, and I'm just really impressed by the range of analogy. And I wondered if you could say a few things about choosing appropriate analogies. And when you get to the limit of one, what do you do then as a science communicator? You know, people, science communicators have a choice in how they prefer to communicate. Some people, you know, they delve into equations or, or something like that. But for me, I'm a very visual learner. If I can see it, I can understand it. Now, analogies are usually really terrible. And if you want to, to do something, um, you know, technical and precise, because every analogy comes with misconceptions, because no analogy is perfect. But I find that when I when I myself, as a professional scientist, uh, am taught something, I'll see the equations and, and I know what they mean and I can solve them and so forth. But I don't really internally understand what's going on in my gut until I come up with a visual analogy. And so I think this helps me as a science communicator because there are a lot of people who have a similar um, way of internalizing things. And they don't actually care about the uh, all the equations and stuff. They just want to kind of understand the real crux of things. So I think this is one of my strengths as a science communicator is I can usually find an analogy that's, that's pretty good. Now, you know, as with any analogy, there, there are flaws in it. And, and if you push hard enough on any of them, you, you'll find that it falls apart. But for most people who are interested in this sort of stuff, if the analogy gets you 95 or 98% of the way there, then that means you know a ton. And so that's just my approach. I mean, there are other people that make different choices, but, but I find that works best for me. Mm -hmm. Do you find that uh, finding the right analogy to, to sort of understand things um, on a gut level helps you as a scientist as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I use these analogies. I mean, some of them, 
you know, there, there are more complex and less complex analogies. And if you remember in the book, we haven't mentioned it yet, but one of the sections here uh, where we talk about the, the Higgs boson and, mm-hmm. and how that works, there were a series of analogies. And the reason I do that is like the, the metaphor of the blind men feeling the elephant where one feels the leg and it's a trunk, uh, the trunk of a tree and one feels the, the, uh, the trunk of the elephant and says it feels like a snake and so forth. Each analogy illuminates a facet of the bigger picture. And if you want to understand the total big picture, then you have to delve in and you know become a, a professional like I've had to do. But if you want to just get a picture of what it is where you understand a lot of it, you can use a series of analogies to um, to highlight all of the little bits. And I, I find that that helps me too because when I need to understand something specific, I, I can go to that analogy and it will help me focus my thinking before I go back to doing it in the sort of technical and mathematical way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so moving into chapter five, which is called Teething Pains and Triumphs, <laughs> um, you describe in September of 2008 when the LH- LHC had been assembled and was almost ready to go, um, that first success when the beam was turned on uh, generated a huge amount of public attention, even though, as you point out, it was uh, kind of a small first step towards a functioning LHC. Um, and I guess, what are your thoughts on this media attention that this topic has generated? Well, I'm all for it. And uh, different scientists have different opinions on that. Some are incredibly conservative scientists. They think there should be no excitement. Everything should be dry. We should report the facts and tell the world this is what we measured. And at some level, there's something to be said about that. But it completely misses the point, I think, because science, while it's true, it's full of facts. It's full of very precise and careful ways to get at an answer that you can um, justify and defend to an audience that that is suspicious that you did it right. That's all great. That's what science does. And that's why we as a society like science, because um, it has solved problems. Planes do fly. Um, Medical treatments do work. People get better. But it also misses the human element, the excitement, the fact that the people who our scientists are fundamentally excited and interested about what they do. And so I'm actually very happy to see the press come and help us share the excitement of what we do. I mean, when the LHC turned on in 2008, uh, that was the result of 25 years of preparation, 25 years. And you know, it would have been a shame if a couple of us had sit and high-fived one another and not shown the world just how incredible it was to be able to do this. Um, so I'm happy to have the press involved. Now, you have to be a little um, cautious um, because one of the things that is new in sort of the news and science communication are science blogs. 
in science blogs, they're often irritatingly well uh, informed. But sometimes what they will do is they will present things that that aren't quite right. And you know, I guess that's been true in the past where reporters would sometimes get the story a little wrong. But um, we as scientists really do have to exist. You know, we can live in our ivory tower all we want, but we live in the real world as well. And those leaks about discoveries do come out. And that means that we who are a scientist and be interested in communicating it have to um, be part of that that conversation because otherwise wrong things get out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so also just a few days after that initial success with all of the media attention, uh, there was an incident and the LHC had to be shut down for quite a while to be repaired. Uh, could you tell us a little about what happened? Oh, how depressing. Yes, <laughs> I can tell you. That, that was awful. Um, we turned on, um, and just shy of two weeks later, um, we were trying to commission one of the last bits of the uh, accelerator that hadn't been turned to full power. And it turned out... Uh, this thing is the accelerator is 17 miles around and we run electricity through the magnets and the electricity makes the magnetic field. But what that means is you need really good electrical connections. And the way that's done at the LHC is by soldering wires together. And it looks like in retrospect, somebody forgot to properly solder two wires together. Um, We're not sure because the place where this happened was damaged enough that there's nothing left. But that's kind of the guess as to what occurred. Someone just made a mistake. And the accelerator broke. And the way it did so was by making, um, between these two wires that were not connected, well, there was a spark. And, you know, we're talking big currents here, a lot of electrical current, 10,000 amperes of electrical current. And when you get a spark without much current, um, it will inevitably heat up the wire. And when it heats up the wire, it'll melt, which would happen. And that we could have survived. But then, remember, these magnets are very, very cold. And the coolant that we use to make them so cold is helium, chilled to 1.9 Kelvin, about 455 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. And that spark broke the thermos bottle that was holding the helium in. And when that happened, um, just in the same way, like a pressure cooker where you have the steam coming out of a pressure cooker at high speed, the helium came out and heated up and converted from liquid to gas. And it shot out with tremendous velocity, incredible force. Um, To give you an idea of the force, these magnets are huge. They are um, 50 feet long. They weigh 35 tons. And the helium came out with such velocity and such force that they moved the magnets two or three feet and ripped the magnets out of concrete, the floor where they were bolted to. And so this was, shall we say, a very depressing day. Um, it took about a year to repair and find out what the um, underlying issue was, and uh, we have now, well, that was in 2008. We turned back on in 2009, but by 2010, we were more um, turning on more confidently, and at that time, we had better instrumented our 
accelerator so that this would not happen again. And um, But to be safe, we were only running at half the um, energy that we designed the accelerator to run at. Um, and that's why we actually shut down. We shut down in the... Um, the spring of 2013 and we have been doing all sorts of repairs making sure that all of the soldering of all the connections are are done properly um, double checking everything and when we turn on in the um, spring of 2015 we will be running basically at full energy it's almost double the energy of what we're running at now and so basically it's like a whole new toy we have a whole new accelerator with nearly double the energy and more collisions per second um but uh it did take us a year to get us back on our feet after the thing broke in 2008 mm-hmm. it's very impressive and then some of the images that you include in the book of the damage are very impressive as well oh yeah um, but as soon as it gets back up and, and humming, you know, we have this uh, dramatic Higgs saga, is what you what you call it, from 2012. And I'm just wondering, why do you call it the dramatic Higgs saga? Well, I mean, it took 50 years. <laughs> it was pretty dramatic. Um, plus, you know, it was it was it was an, an amazing. I mean. You know, I've been in particle physics a long time, and when we make a discovery, um, you know, we might have our little press release, and two or three reporters might call and ask us what it was about, and we might get a story on, you know, the fifth page of some newspaper. But when the Higgs boson was announced, it wasn't like that at all. It was absolutely incredible. Um, according, we, we have some media specialists, and the reports of the discovery of the Higgs boson w- made it to an audience of a billion people. Um, there were 5,000 broadcasts on 1,000 television stations. Um, if you saw the, the newspaper reports, I mean, this was front page above the fold stories in newspapers from every language I've ever looked, you know, everywhere from, you know, here in the U.S., but um, you see Russian newspapers, French, um, Finnish newspapers, um, newspapers I can't even identify the language because they're, they're, you know, I can't even figure out what the letters look like. Um, and that is why it was dramatic. I mean, f- briefly, the particle physics, Community got the kind of attention that um, only place people like NASA used to get a long time ago, and it was really just totally incredible. I mean, people were tweeting about it. Um, people you wouldn't uh, wouldn't imagine would have tweeted about this, but uh, um, uh, musicians Will I Am, who apparently is a science buff, um, was tweeting to all of his followers about the LHC. I mean, it was everywhere, and that was just really incredible to be part of that. I can imagine. Um, and well, one thing that really fascinated me about the the unfolding of the Higgs story is this blinding and unblinding of the data by the experiment teams. Um, can you describe what that means? Oh, yeah. This is really important. It's part of the reasons why people believe and understand science, because we are so incredibly careful. So let me give you a little backstory. So in 2011, we um, had analyzed our data, and we found that there was suggestions in the data that maybe we were seeing the Higgs boson. Now, the data was not good enough to say that we were. 
you know, just maybe that we were. Now, what we don't want to do is when we then look at the data from the next year, 2012, to have our analysis approaches biased by what 2011 was telling us. So what we did is we blinded ourselves to the data. And that means that you would stake out a region near where you where the 2011 data said that they were seeing something and you were not allowed to look at the data at all. Just simply, we put it in a box, nobody could look at it. And then what we would do is we would look in other places, other bits of the data where we knew there was no signal, we knew there was no discovery to be had, and it was an area that we understood very well from, from decades of doing measurements at other energies. And we verified that our data was in agreement with all of the measurements from all of the decades before. And then, and only then, did we actually allow us to look at the place where maybe there was a signal. And lo and behold, we actually found in the 2012 data um, the, the same sorts of thing we saw in 2011. And it turns out much more because we had a lot more data in 2012 than we did in 2011. So blinding just means that you don't allow your prejudices or your prior knowledge to um, to guide your thinking because you don't want to fool yourself. You found something. And and that's what we did. And it was truly incredible. The um, other thing that was interesting is there are two large um, detectors at the LHC. One is called ATLAS and one is called CMS. And these two experiments um, are competitors. It's kind of like the Ford and the Chevy of the uh, the particle detector world. So they uh, the two facilities are trying to do the same thing. They're both trying to measure these particle collisions, but with very different designs. And not only were the two detectors, say, for instance, my own CMS, showed the same result from 2011 and 2012, but also Atlas had the same results from 2011 and 2012. And the two experiments, Atlas and CMS, all saw the same thing. So it's not like we just had one measurement. We had four independent measurements all telling the same story. And that was the reason we were confident enough to make the announcement we did in 2012. Mm -hmm. I just love the uh, dramatic story of uh, finally unblinding the data and the signal was huge. It was much bigger than you expected. Is that Am I telling that correctly? Um, it was similar to what we expected. Oh. There were a, there were a few. There, there was one particular instance, a particular decay mode of the Higgs boson into particles called photons. So these are like high energy light particles, um, and that de, that that seemed to be more than we predicted. Um, the that seems to have declined a little bit. So now it's more in lines with our expectations. And, um, and that just comes down to statistics. I mean, if you, if you flip a coin, uh, 20 times, you sort of expect 10 heads, but occasionally you'll get 13 heads or something. And that seems to be what occurred there. It was just kind of lucky that we got a few more than we expected. <laughs> okay. Um, well, in the final, uh, chapter before the conclusion, looking for something new, you describe some of the questions that are being explored now, you know, post the uh, Higgs boson discovery, which I'm, I'm, I should be careful to say a Higgs boson and not the Higgs boson, <laughs> something I learned from your book. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, can you tell us what some of those questions are looking to the future? 
Well, sure. Um, and part of the reason is is because there were people who said, well, you know, you built the LHC to find the Higgs boson. You found the Higgs boson. Shouldn't you shut down and move on? And the only answer to that is, you know, when you're digging and you find gold, you don't stop digging. You keep looking. And so the fact that we have found a particle that looks a lot like the Higgs boson, it may very well be the Higgs boson predicted back in 1964. Um, if that was true, then it brings with us some mysteries. For instance, our, the theory that we have to describe matter, we call it the standard model. That's just the name of it, which is really boring, but that's what we call it. And um, it makes a prediction that the mass of the Higgs boson should crazy, humongous, big. And that has to do, as I said earlier, where the fact that um, gravity is very weak compared to the other forces. And the reason that gravity is very weak is tied to the prediction that the mass of the Higgs boson should be crazy big. Um, but it doesn't seem to be. And we don't understand that. So either we have to um, come up with a new theory or we have to somehow extend the theory that we currently have. And since the theory is so very accurate on so many things. What it looks like is we're just missing a piece somehow. And so this tells us that, that the, the data that we will take at the Large Hadron Collider almost certainly, I mean, it's in fact almost a guarantee that we will discover something that will significantly change our understanding of the fundamental rules that govern the universe. Um, now, we don't know what those may be. It could mean the quarks and leptons that we currently think are the smallest bits of matter um, really aren't, that they themselves have smaller building blocks still. That's a possibility. Another possibility is kind of hard to get your head around, but maybe there are more dimensions of space. So we know we live in three dimensions. You can go forward, backward, left, right, up and down. But there is a possibility that there might be additional dimensions. And these dimensions are very small, which is kind of another weird thing to think about. Um, but we're studying to see if we can find them, because if those exist, Exist, that would explain the mystery that we're seeing. And, but the most popular possible explanation is this idea called supersymmetry. And supersymmetry is just sort of an extension. It's an add-on to our current theory. And it, it would take a while to explain in detail. But basically, um, our existing theory treats matter and forces as sort of separate and distinct things. But if supersymmetry is true, then you can show that matter and forces are really one and the same. And if that's the case, first it predicts that we will find more particles that we haven't yet found. So that's one of the things we're looking for. But if it does, it also tames this nasty prediction of the standard model that the mass of the Higgs boson is, is super big because then it will be natural that the mass is small and, and what we see. So these are possible explanations, and by no means are they the only explanation. And even more exciting is, I mean, you got to remember, when you do the kind of science I do, you really are probing into the unknown. I mean, any day you could make a measurement that proves that the old theory is really very badly flawed, and we have to replace it with something completely new. And, and that's kind of hard for a lot of people to think about because, you know, we're used, they're used to confirming um, predictions. But we're not in, well, we are in the confirming 
uh, business, but we're also in the discovery business. And it could be that uh, this time next year, we'll be talking about something that totally blows our mind, that we don't even know what it was because nobody expected it. Um, so looking to the future of the LHC then, I know it's going to reopen next year uh, in the early months, um, but there are additional planned closures for up- continued upgrades after that. Is is that right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the it will be at least 20 years, maybe even 30 years, that the LHC will be the premier facility on the planet. And you don't... You know, you, you could just keep doing the thing over and over again, but in the same way that, um, you know, if you look back in the 1950s, what a, a top-end race car was like, um, well, that the, the cars nowadays are much, much better and much, much faster. And so as time goes on, technology improves, scientists come up with new ideas to ways to make the facility perform at even higher levels. And so we already know that there's um, technology that exists that was not available when we started building this thing 20 years ago. And so as we continue to run, um, a subset of the scientists involved on this will spend some time um, trying to build newer and improved detectors and then um, after a while, we'll shut the accelerator down for half a year, a year or something, pull out the old detector, pop in a new one with higher performance and turn it back on and see if we see something even better. Um, and the same thing goes with the accelerator. We have hopes of increasing the number of collisions per second from what we had in 2012 and 2013. Well, to the very beginning of 2013, um, what we expect when we turn on now will be probably double the collisions per second. And the hope is that at the end of 15 years, we might have maybe even 10 times as many collisions per second compared to what we have now. So it's a, a continuous process of trying to push more and more performance out of something that's already world-class. Okay. Well, that's that's a good place to wrap up the discussion of the book, I think, uh, which enjoyed this book very much and anyone who is a fan of physics and it's also a bit of a memoir and an insider's look at the Large Hadron Collider and the discovery of the Higgs boson um, will enjoy this book very much and I absolutely encourage people to pick it up. Uh, so the next final question that I have for you is uh, what are you working on now or what's next for you? Well, I have um, some more books in the back of my head, which I am sketching out. Um, I have yet to, um, to to finish writing them. Um, I'm also working with uh, other um, science communication venues. For instance, I have written for Scientific American, and um, I try every so often, every two years or so, to try and pitch an article to them. And so we're talking together about a an article about um, an interesting type of science that that the LHC might shed some light on. Um, I uh, also work with the the people at Nova. I want you know the the thing with a book is a book takes a long time to write, and then it takes a long time to to get printed and so forth, and so everything happens on you know slow time scales, and so I'm spending now a, a fair fraction of my time with these faster 
turnaround ways of communicating science. Um, one thing I've been spending a lot of time on is I have a series of YouTube videos um, that basically they're I don't know, they're five or 10 minutes, depends. And um, they talk about all of the types of things that you find in the book. So if you, um, well, I absolutely recommend everybody buy the book. Um, if you want the quick answer for some of these things, some of my analogies you'll find in these videos I'm making. So um, I continue to push in all directions to try and, you know, um, share the message of, of this cool science. And, uh, you know, I can expect in the future I'll continue to be looking for new ways to do that. Well, it's very well done. And uh, I really admire the approach to split into different mediums as many as possible. Um, so thank you very much for joining me. And uh, everyone, I, I hope that if you're listening that you will uh, go out and I absolutely recommend uh, reading this book if you're interested in physics and the, what the future holds in terms of new discoveries. You've been listening to New Books in Physics. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.